And John Newton wrote a, a wonderful hymn about this. What can save us from the curse of the law? And we're going to learn this song. Ian Patillo is going to sing it for us this morning. And um, Ian's going to sing it about a third higher than we, would, we human, normal humans would sing it. So, but, but you just listen and learn this hymn. And then in the weeks to come, we will learn it just down a, a, a third of it. So, Ian, thank you for teaching this to us. You can pass the plates now. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the Lord's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Let us love the Lord who brought us, pitied us when enemies called us by. His grace and taught us, gave us ears and gave us eyes. He has washed us with His blood. He has washed us with His blood. He has washed us with His blood. He presents our souls to God. Let us wonder, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is just as smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood, he who washed us with his blood. He who washed us with his blood, he secured our way to God. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted Him before us. Now their praises fill the sky. He has washed us with His blood. He has washed us with His blood. He has washed us with His blood. He will bring us home to God. Have you ever been near a lightning bolt? Boom! With the immediate crash of thunder behind it. And the flash and the sound caused the hair on your neck to stand up. 
When God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, we are told that there were, for Israel, encamped around the mountain, flashes of lightning, crashes of thunder, and the earth shook. And it was even if a man or a beast should touch the mountain, they would die. And in the song Ian just sang for us, John Newton asks the question, Who can hush the law's loud thunder? Who can quench Mount Sinai's flame? And in our text today, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, Jesus gives us one of his great I have come passages I have come statements and he explains to us why he came into this world verse 17 do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So far, the reading of God's word. Who has hushed the law's loud thunder? Who has quenched Mount Sinai's flame? past two months, we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've gotten to the Beatitudes, and for two months, we have welcomed Jesus into our lives to lift the lid on our hearts and to expose us, ouch, to expose our our character and to challenge us with how he wants his disciples to live in those Beatitudes. And we have taken him seriously to our, to our heart. How, Lord, do you want us to live before you? And in the next couple of months, in the next few weeks, why Jesus is going to talk to us about temptations and sins. He's going to talk about lust and adultery. He's going to talk about marriage and divorce. He's going to talk about promises that you make and promises you break. He's going to talk about rage and anger that you experience and how you resolve conflicts. He's going to be talking to you about your life. But this passage, this passage we're looking at today, is not about you. It's not about me. This is a moment when Jesus announces to those who have assembled to hear him, both his friendly disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes that are scrutinizing him and wondering what he's all about. 
This is a moment where Jesus says, this is about me. And I want to tell you why I have come. I have thought about this passage for years. In fact, for the past 10 years, I've been in dialogue with another minister in our denomination, David Gordon, who's also a professor of New Testament at Grove City College, where my son Andrew went to school. And David Gordon and I have talked about this passage many times. He's helped me think about this. And he, he, I still remember the first time he said, John, this is one of those great I have come passages where Jesus says, it's not about you right now, this is about me. And he says why he has come. Matthew 9, 13, for example. It's one of those places where Jesus says, I did not come to do this, but I came to do that. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We actually sang that earlier in the hymn. Not the righteous, but the sinners Jesus came to call. Why would he have said that? Well, because Jesus liked a good party and he went to parties and to dinners with tax collectors and Pharisees and unwashed people and uh, uh, I mean, tax collectors and prostitutes had been in, they said, and people who drank, not Pharisees. And the Pharisees were standing looking and saying, why are you with people like that? And so Jesus explains, in my earthly ministry, I came to call sinners not the righteous. Now, when he comes a second time, Jesus will, when he comes in his glory, he will assemble the righteous, those he made righteous, to himself and take them home into heaven. But his first trip to earth was to call sinners to himself. Or another very interesting one, Matthew ten thirty four, where Jesus says, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Hmm. Maybe you're here today and you think, I thought Jesus came in order to tell every one of us how we can all get along. Can't we all just get along? Isn't that why Jesus came? He says, no, to the contrary. My message will be disruptive. And we saw last week about persecution. We, people will suffer persecution. He says there will be religious division over me and there will be, even in families, division over me. But when he returns the second time, he will bring peace. The lion will lie down with the lamb when Jesus comes, and his kingdom will be a perfect kingdom of peace. But the first time he came, he says, there will be division over me. So in our passage, this is another do not think I came for this, I came for that. And what does he say? I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. To fulfill. What does this word mean, to fulfill? It does not mean, well, there was something lacking in the law and prophets and Jesus needed to top it off a little bit and add a little bit more to fill it up. No, that's not what it means. But to fulfill means to carry out. That is to say, in the sense of giving full obedience to it. I have come to fulfill it, to obey it, to, to show it in its entirety and in its perfection. And what does he fulfill? The law and the prophets 
And as you read through the Bible, you hear this phrase, the law and the prophets, and what does that refer to? But the comprehensive sense of the whole Old Covenant. Think about it. When Jesus Christ was transfigured, do you remember reading about that in the Gospels? When Jesus was transfigured, there were two people standing there with him. Do you remember who they were? Moses and Elijah. Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, first in the school of the prophets. And they were talking with Jesus in his glory about his mission and about, literally it says about his exodus, that is, about his departure, his death and resurrection, what he came to do. And they validate that the law and the prophets are now going to be summed up in the life and ministry of the one transfigured before them, Jesus Christ. He says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. You Pharisees, you think... I'll ignore maybe the tiny parts of it. He says, but no, nothing in this covenant will pass away, not even the tiniest part, until all is accomplished. Tiny parts. Endure the food laws, distinguishing between clean and unclean. Why, even like the kinds of thread you're supposed to wear in your clothing, and you've got to keep some of them separate. Or maybe some of the calendar regulations of how you run your, your annual year. Jesus said, I came to fulfill it all. All of it in its entirety. All the prophets in their entirety. The Ten Commandments, the little things, it's all fulfilled in me. But then he goes one step fuller, one step further. And he says, I didn't come to destroy it. I will be the culmination of all that they intend. And after he's raised from the dead, do you remember the conversation he has with Cleopas on the road to Emmaus? Do you remember that? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning who? Concerning himself. There it is. And a little later, when he's with another gathering of disciples, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The prophets? Oh, we could spend hours talking about the over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled about the Messiah in Jesus. And I, I can't go over all those with you, but some of you have studied them, right? Born in Bethlehem, check. Born of a virgin, check. Rides a colt, a donkey, into Jerusalem with people singing Hosanna, check. Hands pierced, feet pierced, forsaken of God, check. But even more to fulfill the prophets means that no, Elijah is no longer first in the school of the prophets. But Moses said, remember, one greater than I is coming. One is coming. Listen to him. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Jesus assumes his place as the first of the prophets. The great prophet, the very word of God himself, delivering the word of the Lord to us.
He fulfills the prophets. And he fulfills the law. And theologians, they they talk about different ways to look at the law. There are the moral laws, and there are the ceremonial laws, and there are the judicial laws. What are these? The, The moral law, that's God's holy demands for his people, like the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not steal. These are the ethical requirements he gives to his people. Or the ceremonial laws, right? The, the sacrifices, the, the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, and the feasts and the offerings. And there was the civil law, his government as a nation over that particular nation, that theocracy. See, Galatians 4 verse 4 says it so beautifully. It says this. It's a New Testament verse, well to underline. Galatians 4, 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. The moral law. He is, who's Jesus? Jesus is the God-man, and though he was flesh and blood like us and tempted like us in every way, He never sinned. Did you know that about Jesus? Did you know that? Jesus never sinned. I've sinned. You've sinned. He never sinned. Even Pontius Pilate, when he's on trial, Pontius Pilate says, I find no fault with him as they take him off to be murdered. He's fulfilled the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law. All these slain animals, the bloody altars, the blood poured out. Listen, if you went into the tabernacle and you saw the priest offering the sacrifices, you were seeing a picture, a shadow of the great high priest who had clean hands and a pure heart, Jesus Christ who offered the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. What did Jesus do as the high priest? He offered himself as our sacrifice. And so in the fulfillment of the moral law, in his perfect life, he lived for us. And in his death, he fulfills the sacrificial system. Hebrews 9.12, by his own blood he entered once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And I don't know about you, but I am so grateful. I'm so thankful. Because I have not kept the law perfectly. And I know that the wages of sin is death. And I deserve to die. And he died in my place. Are you thankful? Have you acknowledged Jesus as your great covenant keeper, as your Savior, as your Lord? Have you done that? Are you thankful too? No more blood required as an offering. We sang earlier, when I survey the wondrous cross, look at the cross. What do you see? 
It's not just some tragedy. Look at the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones says what was happening at the cross was that the Son of God was enduring in his own body the penalty prescribed by the holy law of God for the sin of man. The law condemns sin and the condemnation is death. So Jesus fulfills the moral law with his life. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law with his death. And the civil law, that's the government of his people in the nation, as a nation. For a time, for a brief time, it was a theocracy under God in ancient Israel where God ruled his subjects. But in that parable we looked at last week, the parable of the talents, one where they kept killing the servants that the master kept sending to them. Who was that? That was the prophets. And then he says, I will send my son. And they killed him, right? Foreshadowing the... Uh, the, 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 the cross of Christ and the murder of Christ. And then Jesus says in Matthew 21, 43, he says it. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Who is that? Who is the holy nation? Who is, who are the chosen people of God now that it has been taken away from Israel? Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes to the Gentile churches and he says, but you are a chosen people. Wait, I thought in the book of Exodus and Numbers it says Israel was. He says, but you, Gentile believers, you are a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people for his own possession. And who is our king? How does he govern us? By being the king of kings and the Lord of lords and the head of the church himself, fulfilling even, even the judicial and um, legislative role as our king and our leader. Wow! Do not think I've come to abolish the law, Jesus said, but to fulfill it. And I'm so glad he did. Oh, something is happening. Something is happening in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Change is coming. Peter will soon discover that you can eat pork and shellfish. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. Oh, Lord, I can... No. This is past. What about the calendar? What about keeping all the festivals and the new moons? And Paul says, no more, no more Sabbaths and new moons. It's past. But what about circumcision? What about... This was a huge deal to the Jews. Why? Because to come into the covenant family required circumcision. And what do you know? The the apostles go preach in the Gentile town of Antioch, and people get converted. People become followers of Jesus. And and we are told that uh, in Acts 15, that now some of the Jewish believers are going to require the new Gentile believers to be circumcised. 
and to obey the law of Moses. Because that's what you do, right? So they assembled in Jerusalem. And Peter makes a speech at the end, verses 10 and 11. And Peter says this, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? But our passage today, back in Matthew 5, tells us that there was one who was able to bear the unbearable yoke of the law. And there was one who did bear the unbearable yoke of the law. And he did it as the basis of our salvation. And so Peter ends his speech in Acts 15. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so the apostle dares to write Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Whoa! And is there a new new creation that came with Jesus? And David Gordon and I, again, over ten years, we've been talking about this. And I reread Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 again this week. And it's thrilling to see that, that a great shift happened when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. That you had the inauguration of the fulfillment of the phrase, all is accomplished. All is accomplished. It is finished. And so the writer to Hebrews says, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Chapter 8, he has become the mediator of a superior covenant. 9.15, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Paul says a new creation has dawned. Have you memorized 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17 that says, If any man is in Christ, he is new creation. And by the way, the little, what the grammar people call the indefinite article, the A is not in there. What he's saying is if any man is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. It's not really about the individual person. He's saying if you are in Christ, you are now ushered into new creation. The new creation has dawned. Even in that sense, heaven and earth are now disoriented and have begun to pass away. Wow. With the coming of Christ, everything has changed. It used to really matter You could not be in the family of God unless you were circumcised, men. You could not. But you see, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ was cut off. He became sin. He became filth. He became repugnant to God. And he was cut off. And now it doesn't matter whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised in your union with Jesus Christ. Yes, you were cut off in his death, but you are raised from the dead with him as well and circumcised in heart. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And then he says, and this is point number two, Briefly, he turns to his disciples 
And he says to them that their understanding and their obedience is going to be superior to the scribes and the Pharisees. That's verse 20. Sometimes when I talk about the wonderful reality that we are not under law but under grace, we are beneficiaries of a new and better covenant that he has hushed the law's loud thunder. Sometimes people think, well, does your pastor teach then that it doesn't matter how you live? Is your pastor one of those pastors who says Christians can just do whatever they want and sin doesn't matter because Jesus paid it all and I can just do what, live however I like? See, there's a theological term for that. It's called, and this is a good word to know, called antinomianism. Anti, against, nomos, law, the Greek word for law. Are you then anti-good, ethical, Christian behavior? Are you an antinomian, Pastor John? Are you telling us people can just do whatever they like? And I hope you know that that's not true. Listen, I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples in verse 20 is this. When you live in the reality of my fulfillment of the law and the prophets, when you are free from the curse of the law, the Westminster Confession puts it in in chapter 19 that Christians are free from the curse of the law. And when you are full of gratitude, thank you, Lord, for my salvation. And you are so excited about what Jesus has done for you that you then want to live for him and you don't care about the opinions of people anymore. The scribes and the Pharisees, they only cared about the show. And you don't care about the show anymore. You know it's all about the heart that loves the Lord who bought you. You will live for him in holiness and in love. The law says, we'll be studying this, The law says, you shall not commit adultery. You know what the Christian does? The Christian doesn't just refrain from adultery. The Christian learns how to love his wife as Christ loved the church sacrificially and build her up and care for her, provide for her and and honor her. But the Old Testament law says, you shall not steal. The Christian doesn't just refrain from theft but filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with a new sense of the glory of God inside your heart. The new, the Christian is told, do not steal any longer, but work with your hands that you may earn your keep and then have some to give away to be a blessing to the church and to the poor. With a spirit of radical generosity. Wow. And you will not just refrain from bearing false witness in a court of law. But you, who have heard the word of truth, you will speak the truth in love. Your speech will be so loving, so edifying, so encouraging, so God-honoring. Your righteousness will exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And you will actually live out the very Beatitudes we spent the, next two, the last two months studying. And you will be meek. And you will be merciful. And you will be seeking that purity of heart that hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Yeah, you will be that. But the ground of it all, make no mistake, the ground of it all is Him, the one, He who quenched Mount Sinai's thunder and who quenched Mount Sinai's flame. The ground of it all is the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets for you and for me. He's the great prophet. Will you listen to him? He is the fulfillment of all the law, receiving the curse in his death and fulfilling the commands in his life. Will you worship him and give him your heart? Stop trying to save yourself. Rest in Him. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard that beautiful chorus. He has washed us with His blood. He has washed us with His blood. He has washed us with His blood. He has brought us nigh to God. So, thank you for living the life we should have lived and for dying the death we should have died. Receive us now, our worship, our wonder, our praise. Receive us now to yourself and send us from here eager to glorify you with all we know ourselves to be. In Jesus' name, amen.